Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. And we're live. Probably. It's uh, Value After Hours. I'm Tobias Carlisle, joined as always by Bill Brewster and Jake Taylor. What's happening, fellas? Just living the dream, enjoying that Super Bowl 90s throwback show. I thought that was pretty good. You guys like that yeah. one? Yeah. Shit was hot. I needed more Fiddy, though. I could have used another couple of verses from, from him, but that's okay. Mm. That was good. Yeah. My, uh, I watched it with the, uh, the in-laws, and um, they were just baffled. <laughs> All these, like, the 90s hip-hop came on, and my wife was just like, yes. But no, that was, that was only directed to, uh, to we, to, to the middle-aged folk among us. Us pre-boomers. Yeah, whatever we are. My dad texted me after. He's like, I like Dr. Dre. I was like, where the fuck have you been since I've been bumping this shit? <laughs> like, who are these people? <laughs> you mean 1990? <laughs> old men. Yeah. It's like, hey, that's, this guy's pretty good. That's funny. Yeah. I did see he a is. funny tweet that said uh, that Dr. Dre's been the most believable doctor that we had on TV in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 50 cents now, full dollar too. I'd say he's 225 Oof. these days. Oof. 250. He did. I rewatched it. I did see how he like he got himself up there. He was not helped. So I give him props on that. <laughs> he, got he got himself, himself down. Yeah, at his age, I, I got mad respect for that. Yeah, I didn't realize Eminem was doing the knee thing. I, I thought I didn't even see that like morning uh, Tupac. That's how out to lunch I was on that because he did it while Dre played uh, yeah, the intro to the Tupac. Uh, oh, yeah. Song. That makes sense. I, I found myself because I saw the uh, Jimmy Iovine thing, but that was cool. I found myself really, really sad that Nate Dog didn't come out because he's dead. Yeah, as a hologram, or what was your yeah, plan? I was sad about that. Um, and then, uh, and then somebody mentioned like because I, I quickly tweeted that uh, it was sad that Nate Dog wasn't there, and they were like, "What about Tupac?" But in my head, like Tupac's so big and has been gone so long that it wasn't really even possible for him to be out. I kind of forgot Nate Dog was dead. Mm. And that reminded me. And I feel bad about that. Yeah, I like the uh, I like California. Love that song. Still prefer uh Tupac's version. Dr. Dre did serviceable, serviceable version of it. Yeah, well, he just dropped his own verse. Yeah, he just got his verse in. That's that's fine. Pac's versus Pac is sick. Was sick. This shit's still awesome. Might still be on an island somewhere. We don't know. I don't think that's what's going on. Okay. Maybe. Who knows? How crazy would, it, would the world have gotten if he would have come out, though, on stage? Like, I'm back. Yeah. That would have been sick. Way to announce it. Um, what do we got on deck for today, fellas? <laughs> Just Super Bowl talk the whole time. <laughs> yeah. I'm basically going to recap. Sports. 90s rap. Recap the Super Bowl. LA Rams won. Good if you're a small Angeles. We got Berkshire buying Fwana. Yeah. Got two years oh, too yeah. late. Better late mm-hmm. than never. And yeah. Activision too, apparently, yeah. Warren must have yeah. liked that uh that 
Drive to Survive show on Netflix. It is pretty great. I'm going to go with Ted on this one. <laughs> you think it's a Ted? Yeah. I do think it's a Ted one. Something's yeah, it is a little bit late, isn't it? But anyway, good good pick. Um, JT, what do you got on deck? I've got some veggies for us that uh, I'm titling Agility. So we'll see. I'm actually going to need your help on this one, TC. So you're going to you, you factor heavily in it. Uh, not that agile these days, but I'll try my best. <laughs> what about you, Bill? What do you got? I got some general thoughts. I'll go last. <laughs> some riffing? Any riffing? Yeah. Yeah, there's some riffing. Okay. I like riffing. JT did, JT did jump double duty this week. He gave me an article. Um, I did have something else, but I, this, is, this is a great article, so I'm going to do it just funnily enough answers i think some of the questions that we had last week not necessarily um not necessarily going to resolve them forever but this interesting out of sample testing for for the value factor i have been a i thought that this is evidently this has only just come out this paper but um i'm pretty sure this is what michael mikhail Samanov was talking about when he did his 200 years of value it's it sounds very similar so i haven't had a chance to confirm yet, but there's a new paper. Basically, they looked at some data going way back, and so I'll talk about that a little bit. Shout out to my MoneyGram peeps that were playing the merger arm. Good job. Mm, don't know anything about that. Yes, well, people forget that I still do have some value investing in me. <laughs> Can you guys do a segment on what it's like to be a professional full-time investor? I'll tell you what it is. It's a lot of Yeah, you get your teeth kicked in all the time and then you wonder if you're dumb and then it works and then you think you're smart and then it doesn't work and you think you're dumb again. I don't suffer so much from that, but I just have a lot of compliance. Compliance is like, that's that's what I spend the most amount of money on and that's what I spend the most amount of time doing. I spend 98% of my time wondering if I'm an idiot. What's the other two? I don't know. Masturbating about how smart I am. About right. <laughs> mentally oh who wants to kick it off you want me to take this uh take this take jake's paper away since either way it's you jt so let's let's do the paper the paper's called jt sent me the mark holbert article um he's always great he's picked up this paper and he's done a pretty great job with it i just tweeted out that the relevant chart it's kind of interesting shout out um, to my man scott for sending it to me first so let's it's always, it's the network provides, you know. That is good. Yeah. Uh, the paper's called The Cross-Section of Stock Returns Before 1926 and Beyond, um, perhaps referencing the Fama French We talk paper. about history? Yeah, well, see, here's the question, right? This is the reason why it's relevant because- uh, Dang, someone get Alan Iverson on the phone. The original research, practice. the sort of value research, the original stuff came out in- uh, it was like 1992. This was the Fama French article, and it ran back to 1963. So it was a pretty short window of data that they had. And they, they got this value effect in there using price to book. They said value, things bought cheaply on the basis of price to book tend to do pretty well relative to the market, relative to things that are expensive. And then, the book. What a loser. Uh, it's... Uh, I, I think there are good reasons why they choose it, though. It's because it's pretty static from quarter to quarter and from year to year, whereas, you know, earnings can, low earnings don't necessarily indicate um, that something is 
cheap, they might just be, or, or expensive, they might just be depressed. And so, yeah, I think it made sense back in the day. What, what's a, what do you, what is it to recreate a business? What is that? The F score? What, what's the, what am I trying to? The uh, Tobin's Q. Tobin's Q. Yeah. Yeah. I think Tobin's Q, if you could figure out how to do that, would make sense today. But, you know, like Altria has no book, right? Because they bought in all their equity. So it's it's hard now with some of these more book doesn't work in high earning businesses. Everybody, like, it's pretty well accepted the book doesn't work. Even Cliff Asness pointed out that, you know, through that period where value was doing really badly, the the value factor that did least worst was book because it gives you the least. Uh, value impact, you know. <laughs> it was the most far away from value right. of the values thing, so it did right. better. <laughs> so it did better, funnily uh, enough. Least re- radioactive. So these guys have. So the, the the problem with the problem with any sort of in sample testing is that you, you, what you might see is just complete luck. And so the gold standard for statistical analysis is to take the same idea and then apply it out of sample. And so we've had we've got three potential sources of out of sample testing. We've had since that paper got published in 1992 to date. And what has happened over that period is that the value factor, the value effect has been less good. It's, it hasn't been predictive, as predictive through that period. It's still worked, but it's not as strong as the effect that they found in that 63 to uh, 1992 period. And so these guys have, uh, and then there's also international data. So you can take the same idea and apply it to any other stock exchange around the world. The criticism there is that they're too correlated. The global stock markets, even though they're different, they tend to go up and down roughly together. And then um, these guys have dug up, these guys have put all this stuff together by hand. So I I think this is what Mikhail Samanov was referring to when he did his 200 years of, of value posts. These guys have gone back to 1866. So from the, the 63 data, Famer and French pushed the 63 data back to 1926 and then um, found the same value effect, but also that it was a little bit diminished. And these guys have pushed it back from 1926 to 1866, and they've done it with uh, the, the only um, filings that were made um, prior to 1932, there, there was no requirement to file audited financial statements prior to 1932. So the filings were terrible and you couldn't, they were very spotty. So the only way they can do it is using price to dividend. So they've used dividend yield and they've found on that basis that um, that period of time, 1866 to 1926, was a very good time to be a value investor using price to dividend yield. It, it outperformed. Um, so I think it's kind of an interesting study. I, I don't know that it's necessarily groundbreaking. I'm sure it took a lot of effort and I'm, I'm glad they did it. But, you know, I think that everybody's already got there. It just confirms the prize, confirm my prize. Value works for people who don't like it. No, Any hypotheses on the time differences of like, why did 26 to 64, whatever it was, 63, show less value sampling? Um, and then 64, Four to ninety-two showed yes. Since then, no. But bef- you know, pre nineteen twenty-six, why would that have showed yes? Like, what is there any commonalities in these four periods that we can find that would give us some illustration as to why it question. would work or not? Interest I don't rates. Have the an- uh, I don't have the answer, but I can speculate. I mean, technological one of the ones is- development. Uh, sixty. Those sixty. That period of sixty to whatever it was, 63 to, to 1992 was a period of very rapid growth in the States. Um, so I think that 
I think that that does benefit, you know, so that the, uh, if you look at the, the, the Schiller, uh, you know, the Vitaly Katzenelson characterizes them as being like these, where Schiller Cape is peaking, that's a bull market, where Schiller Cape tends to go sideways for an extended period of time. That's, what, that's a sideways market, but that would be characterized by, so periods of time like, 2000 to sort of 2015 and I, I suspect we're probably still not out of this sideways market yet but at the moment it looks like a new bull market started in 2009 but we'll see where this all ends up but through those periods um i think if you look at the the 60 the last the last one was 66 to 82 and so that would have been a very good time to be a value guy and you know not a good time to be a growth investor so it's it's kind of caught that in the middle mm. maybe i don't know so you think the premium has more to do with actually the other side of the bet, which was like maybe growth scuffling? I think that value is fairly stable. Value sort of tends to, it does better, but I think a lot of the performance is relative. Just, you know, value just, hasn't just done loses badly. a little bit of money every year. And then <laughs> <laughs> value hasn't done badly over the last sort no. of decade. It's just that on a relative basis, it's done terribly. Right. 63 to 82 is like when the boomers came into their own, right? Or am I... Am I well, a little boomers, early on boomers that? like forty. Boomers born in like the end of World War Two, so it's like forty-five to whatever. Sixty. Yeah. So they were like twenty-three yeah, to forty. I think sixty is kind of the cutoff age or uh, birth year. That's probably right. That's the snake going through the or the hump going through the snake. Yeah, I just wonder how much of that had to do with growth, like in earnings. But it tends to do better out of the bottom. I don't know why on a relative basis, but everything I guess they. Because it gets shit canned in the downturn. Well, I don't know that. Well, that's funny because you know the the it used to be the case that everybody believed that value didn't did better through a downturn, and that was based on like the two thousand two thousand two drawdown, I think, where you know value skated and everything else got smashed up. So it wasn't the case in two thousand seven two thousand nine. Got smashed. We're always up fighting the last war. <laughs> that is true. Do you, but do you think that that do you think that view that value gets smashed up is like a march? 2020 view like value got smashed and and growth skated through that i i just i don't know i guess it all depends the reason for the sell-off yeah i feel like it's also a little bit of like where did you start i mean if you were if you were expensive uh, expensive relative to normal valuation for your value basket then you kind of yeah. would, might expect a little bit more damage right and vice right. versa I think that's what happened in 2007. I think so too. Bad dispersion. Can price to dividend yield effectively be the carry factor in stocks? Not sure what that means. Dividend yield is definitely, that's the carry. Sorry, Sol, I don't understand the question. You have to go to a smarter podcast than this one. (laughs) Ask that question. Yeah. Yeah, is there? Do you have any misgivings about dividend yield as a uh, metric for measuring? Yeah, it's as Meb Faber will point out, it hasn't been a particularly great factor. Um, I don't know why that is. If you, I, I don't know why, and it's clearly it's not very tax efficient. And I, I guess there are companies out there that tend to be lower growth, and so they're they're paying out as much of their earnings as they can in dividends because they know that's why people hold the stock. And so maybe you get to a point where you're just underinvesting in um, the business so that you can keep on servicing the yield and that gets you into trouble, maybe. Could be. I mean, if 
historically, it wasn't until what, maybe like the early 80s where anyone, aside from a few very iconoclastic, you know, outsiders type of CEOs where they were doing any buybacks. So that was your other outlet for return of capital to shareholders. So if it was only dividend for all, most of that time period before that, then kind of would imagine it would be a more realistic measurement, uh, but less so now when you have also buybacks as a potential. And even uh, there's probably some comp proxy statement kind of math and reasons you could look into to see why buybacks might be favored over dividends at this. Yeah. Um, it's just the incentives for management uh, kind of push them towards more, buybacks more. They're also more tax efficient. I mean, if you sell pro rata yeah. into your buyback, you get advantage tax yeah. rates. And you get to decide if you want the dividend or not as the shareholder, which I like. Yeah, you can have it whenever you want too. You can time it whenever you want. Lower tax. There's a lot of good reasons for doing it that way. Yeah, why are there not more shareholder yield funds? I don't know. Meb's got a great idea with his shareholder yield, um, which is buybacks plus dividend yield. It should be, that's a pretty strong, it's an incredibly strong factor because it's, um, I think it tells you that management is doing the right thing when they're, they're buying back when it's undervalued. If the, if the yield is significant or the buyback yield is significant, that's a pretty good indicator that they're shareholder friendly or they've got options struck, struck at the right price, one or the other. Well, I mean, I think interest rates matter here as well. When So like, imagine that I lay before you as the CEO, your palette of potential options to you know kind of color your own coloring book of capital allocation. And one of them is redeploy money into your own business, right? And when you look at your swath of potential investment opportunities inside your business, the lower the rates are, the more internal projects are going to pencil out as positive NPV projects. So I think you know it's possible that we've pushed towards more reinvestment within the business, even sometimes maybe when it hasn't been the best idea because rates are lower. Uh, and there's, and if you're the, if you are a, an investor on the other side of that, then and you're deciding, okay, do I want the money back or do I want them to retain it? Um, and you have nowhere else to really put the money, right? Because yields are so low with, with bonds or wherever else you're like, well, shit, they might as well just keep it. And hopefully maybe they know what to do with it better than I can. I don't, I'm Tina, right? There is an alternative. And there's kind of a Tina when it comes to capital allocation as well for you. There's a, there's a, you're heavily incentivized to do what Curate did, right? Where if you trade, if you're trading really cheaply, go and issue a whole lot of bonds and get, get the cash in for that. And then go and, you know, arb that by buying back your stock. Like that's a, that's a no brainer for a lot of these positions. Like, I don't know if we necessarily want all of the businesses in the country doing that though. You know, well, that's effectively what's happened. If you look at corporate balance sheets and you look at buyback timing, that's, there's been an LBO going on for seven years now, but whether that is good or bad in the longer term, uh, we're like, going to find out. Like, like Buffett always says uh, about everything with economics, and then what? Uh, so I don't know if we know the answer yet to, and then what? Just convert to Bitcoin. Don't pay it back in, or just inflate it away. Like that, that works too. Yeah, it's great. So you have to feed a family. And <laughs> you want to do your veggies, JT? Sure. So um, this is a 
uh, segment on agility. And it's, it's from this terrific little book called Certain to Win by Chet Richards. And he was an acolyte of John Boyd. And until Toby comes out with his book on strategy, <laughs> Grandmasters, uh, this is a really nice starting point. Um, so I thought I would just go through some of the stuff that in the, I found useful in the book. And uh, please jump in and, and add, because I know that you have all kinds of great stories that are going to be way better than you probably should have done this segment instead of me. But um, so like, we'll start out with like, let's just talk about agility in general. And I'm going to give you an example of it. Um, my 10 year old, who's not a, a math or any kind of prodigy could beat a grandmaster at chess with one simple rule modification. He gets to take two turns for every one turn of the grandmaster. Okay. Now there's this idea called uh, Lanchester's model. And it's sort of like what you imagine when you look at like playing risk or something and you have all the little pieces on the board and, you know, they're fighting. Um, and the idea is like, it's like a red team versus a blue team. And you have the number of kind of like, you know, troops or whatever tanks, whatever unit that you want to count. And then you have the effectiveness of that unit. So like their firing rate, things like that, like how, how much damage can they inflict? And so Lanchester's model is basically like, you know, kind of playing out a little game of back and forth of, okay, we have a hundred units of blue and 200 of red and blues firing capacity is two X of reds. Like seems like an even match, right? Like we have twice the firing power, but half the number. Well, it turns out you actually need four times the firing rate to be able to beat a 200 or, you know, a double of the units. Um, if you actually play out the iterations a little bit and what, one of the takeaways of that, which is very interesting, is that in a, especially in a democracy where conscription to join the military may be not that politically palatable, you end up in a kind of game theory state where you have to have super effective, which also means very expensive weapons. And so if you look at our, how our military has evolved and like, you know, that the, the F-22 Raptor program where it costs, I think, I don't know, $35 million a plane. Like you probably could have predicted that just based on this simple theory of like, well, we're not going to be adding to the number of units that much, right? Because that's not very palatable. So instead, we're going to have to have maximum effectiveness to be able to neutralize any opponents without a huge number. So um, let's let's shift the focus a little bit here to... Um, you know, in, in when you're looking at war, the the it's all it's generally speaking that the bigger army wins. However, there's all these situations where a smaller, less technological advanced side has won. And so in the seventh century, the Arabs beat the Byzantine Empire, the 13th century, the Mongols beat the Chinese, 18th century, the, the colonies beat the, the UK. Right. Um, for the American Revolution, 20th century, you had Germany versus France and, and England. Uh, in the Blitzkrieg, Israel beat the Arabs, uh, Vietnam versus the U.S., Afghanistan versus the USSR, all these situations, like how the hell did this smaller ragtag kind of bunch beat a bigger empire? Um, and so what's going on there? And that's this is where we start to get into John Boyd's OODA loops, which I think we've talked about before. But uh, the basic idea of it is that it's, it's your operational tempo that you are waging war in. So the UDA stands for um, observe, orient, decide, and act. So you're, you're taking in the battlefield, 
you're orienting yourself as to what's happening. You're deciding what to do. And then you're making a de- your decision and you act on it. The faster that you can run that, that process over and over again, you can get ahead of your opponent as far as like just understanding the feel of the battle. And then therefore, uh, that's how you're able to get in front of a bigger army uh, and, and outmaneuver them. So Toby, want to add anything right here before I, I jump into some more stuff? Uh, just that Boyd was a fighter pilot. And I, reading the stories in the book, I think that it's pretty clear that Maverick and Top Gun is based on Boyd as a fighter pilot, including that pancake maneuver where they fly right by. That was one of Boyd's favorites that he pulled on a, um, on a superior in, in Korea. Oh, yeah. He buzzed the tower. <laughs> No, no, no. Where they? Oh, they, the upside down. Yeah. Basically, no, 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 no. Wait, wait. They send out. They send out as a, like a, a training mission when they. I'm gonna hit the brakes and they'll fly right by. Yeah. Well, they, <laughs> they they send out. That's right. They send out. Okay. They send out the new guys have to fly in front and they're being pursued by the guys who are veterans and you always lose in that position because the other guys are already able to fire at you. But Boyd hit the brakes and they all flew right by and they hadn't seen anything like that before and then he turned around and he, he hosed them as he he likes to call it. And so that's where all of his theories began with him as a fighter pilot, where he would, he worked out that if you could turn faster, so maneuverability, agility was more important than speed or anything else, that if you could get inside the turning loop of the other side, which is why an OODA loop kind of, that's, that's the basis for it. Just an interesting story. Yeah. So one thing Boyd talked about too, was like he, he, the, the, his whole career was based on uh, energy maneuverability, like EM, and the so exactly what you just said, right? Like kind of being able to make sudden changes in movement. Um, it's not even speed because speed implies momentum, which then it kind of has a sustainability to it that makes you predictable. Um, so he, the MIG was actually like oftentimes had better characteristics than the the F-86 that was often fighting against each other and like in combat training. And they figured out that it probably what it was, was that the F-86 had a bubble canopy so he could observe more. Like it's the very beginning part of it. It's something as simple as like just being able to see things better uh, was a big difference. Um, Okay. So Boyd was uh, trying to get these things. This is what you want to have on your side of the battle, a sense of mission, morale, harmony and teamwork i know toby we've talked a little bit about this before in other contexts like i think offline but just that when when you're flying a flag that is like attractive and like you could almost get the other side to join you because like they they start to believe in your mission more than (laughs) their other mission uh like you have the game like three quarters one right yeah there's a great line from michael dell where he said someone said why don't you do more acquisitions and he said i try to buy all of my uh, all of my competitors one customer at a time (laughs) <laughs> that's a pretty good line yeah so uh, if you can get all those things on your side it will allow you to appear ambiguous be deceptive generate surprise and panic and then seize the initiative so you, they're always scrambling right uh which then will cause your enemy to become bickering scapegoating amongst each other confusion panic route and then eventually surrender and that's what happened in each one of those battles that we said historically, like where the smaller one beat the, and maybe like, maybe talk a little bit about like Lawrence of Arabia at this point. Uh, Cause he was like a grandmaster at this, right? It's funny how uh, just shout out to Victor Hargrove. Thank you very much for the, for the tip and to Jeff Nolan. Thank you too. Yeah, there was this, um, 
you know, Lawrence of Arabia was like this towering figure for a long period of time. We've just sort of, I don't know whether it was Lawrence of Arabia, the movie was, was huge and it's just sort of fallen out of common consciousness or something like that. But T. Lawrence was in World War II, British uh, intelligence officer in, um, in Turkey. And they were, he was sent out and he, he got a, he fought with the Bedouin or he, he, he got the Bedouin and the tribes to come and fight with him. And so they, they basically found a way to conf- they they fought in a, they fought this guerrilla warfare where they found a way to con- to to confine the Turks to their um to their forts and he said we control ninety nine percent of the land here and they only control the forts and so um that was just his he, he had this he got a fever and he had this dream and he woke up in the morning with this guerrilla warfare um you know fully formed in his mind about how he was going to go and defeat them just great story and then they made a great movie out of it too no so, prisoners uh so boyd actually interviewed firsthand german officers from world war ii the ones who were like largely responsible for executing the blitzkrieg which was a very very effective uh strategy and and tactics um and so there were there were four things that came out of this. And I'm going to try to say the German words here. It's going to be bad. All our German listeners, I apologize. Uh, send your hate mail to Bill Brewster. Um, so the first G-mail.com. one. Yeah. <laughs> the first one is uh, called Einheit. And it's effectively means like it's like mutual trust, unity, cohesion, which allows like quick communications within your group. So if you picture, you know, like your little army unit operating together, like, you know, each other, you, you know what, like a particular look means compared to like, you know, you know, if you could see just like important little cues that come only from working together and training together. So that's a, it's a huge part of having a very cohesive team. Uh, the next one is, okay, here we go. Finger spitzen fool, uh, which means like, it literally means like, finger like on the pulse like uh in an intuitive feel for the battle like having your finger like right on it so to just know like and and especially in a chaotic and complex situation like having your finger on where everyone is and like what's how the battle is is developing um the next one is off track uh which sometimes is put together with uh off track static i think is said which just means it's like a the what's the mission like it's more actually like a contract between the superior and the subordinate where the superior tells them, here's what we're trying to do in order to, you know, X, Y, Z, like, this is our bigger mission that we're trying to accomplish. Can you do this? Like, can you carry it out? And it's, they, you don't tell them how to do it. You just tell them what you want to get accomplished and, and sort of your why behind it. And they're in charge of the how and why that's so important is because when you're actually on the front lines, the general can't be making those kind of little decisions. Like things are happening too fast. It's too chaotic. Your OODA loop would be too slow. So to keep the OODA loop fast, you have to have some kind of processing information on the front lines, which requires them empowerment of the people closest to what's happening. Okay. And then the last one is Schwerpunkt, I believe it said, which is a concept that uh, it provides focus and direction to the operation. Like, it's sort of like center of gravity, emphasis. Spear point, right? Uh, that 
Yeah, that's probably what I think that's. it's literally spear point. That's probably what that is. Yeah. So um, that gives people like a like this is like maybe it's per- one particular unit is has the most important part of the mission, like set up, you know, set explosives on that bridge or whatever it is. And everyone else is knows that that is the most important thing to be executed. That's the emphasis of this mission. But they're going to be doing a lot of other things around it to enable that to happen. So um, all of this stuff can actually, I think, is useful in business. And it actually shows up in, you know, Toyota's production system, like lean manufacturing. It shows up in like agile software development. Um, All these different places, the same concepts occur again and again, and you can find them it's it's like it's basically like when groups of humans work together this particular strategy and these these principles allow for success that is much outsized compared to resources and the size of the team which so if you're in, in a smaller group like you could see how this would be pretty valuable stuff to read so i would suggest picking up certain to win uh and giving it a read yeah that's a great book i liked um i liked the the grand strategy stuff, which is a, which is just a slight abstraction back from that, where he talks about that's one of the things that I've been talking about a little bit. The harmony, the idea of harmony, which is yeah. you were alluding to that a little bit. He's got this great line. This is Boyd, where he says something like, um, "If you're the empire and you're fighting against the gorillas, then you have a look at what they're, you know, what what they're trying to achieve, what their claims are, what what the um, mor- their morality of what they're they're." their argument is. And if you find that more compelling, then you should switch to the rebels. You should switch to the gorillas. So I think that's kind of like, I think there's, there's, there's something uh, humane in Boyd's analysis. And I think that it's, there's some truth in it where he says he's striving for harmony, which is something that Sun Tzu talks about as well. Very unexpectedly that, you know, the, the, the most harmonious group is the one that tends to succeed. Yeah. I mean, you can sort of imagine this, I don't know. There's a playing out in Ottawa today. <laughs> I mean, it feels like some people may or may not be on the right or wrong side of history there. <laughs> we'll see, but shout yeah. out to our Canadian friends. Yeah. So yeah, uh, both of my uncles are truckies. So I'm, I'm pro truckie. Uh, yeah. I have nothing to add. <laughs> Thanks Charlie. <laughs> All right, mate. You want to, you want to, yeah talk about yeah actually there's a reasonably good segue so like uh the mission plus morale plus teamwork that uh jake was talking about i mean a lot of uh, uh, like while you were talking the entire time i was thinking like this is why netflix carries the valuation it does and something like warner discovery carries the uh valuation it does and like i i think that sometimes there have been a couple comments that uh, I think warrant at least some clarification because I do think like sometimes I take shots at value guys uh, and it's really me just talking to my old dumb self. Uh, And if you disagree with me, that's probably good because you're right and I'm wrong Um, and I'll learn it eventually. Uh, Somebody had commented on oil saying that I've dismissed it. I have not dismissed oil. I've dismissed my ability to trade an oil cycle. Okay, if you want to know my dismissal of it, I dedicated a podcast to it with Will Thompson. You can listen to that uh, on why it's going to take a little bit longer. My history in commodities involves me buying Intrepid Potash in 2016 as a debt restructuring. 
I didn't own it when it ripped from eight to 46 recently. Uh, I bought um, Freeport McMoran in December of 2015. Didn't own it for any of the run. I bought uh, Cameco in 2019. Didn't own it for any of the run. I bought... Um, You're just early. Yeah, one other one that I... that you know. So, so like my view of the world is I am not capable to look at commodity businesses and hold them. And I'm not even convinced, but for COVID, a lot of this commodity supply chain stuff happens. I don't know how to do the, the earnings power normalized. Like if you know, and you think I'm wrong, good for you, go make money. Like, I don't care if I'm right or wrong on that. It's not my game. I have one commodity investment. I know absolutely everyone involved. And I think I know everybody's exit plan and what they're planning to do. That's the kind of commodity bet I want to make. And I reluctantly make that bet. Uh, this take on like value versus growth. I think sometimes uh, what some listener referred to me as, uh, I, don't, I don't know, he used a fancy word for moody. I think like at the end of the day, sometimes I just don't give a shit about this debate. And it's because like I'm looking or attempting to look at, you know, like a private equity type lens. And I know that this is super like overused and stuff, but like the stuff I own, Swedish Match, Charter, uh, Berkshire, Microsoft, Google, like all of that is shit at Facebook, unfortunately, recently is stuff that like, I think are good businesses that have growth ahead of them trading at reasonable valuations. People want to debate the valuation thing. Fine, short everything I own. We'll see who's right in the end. I don't care. Uh, but like, as far as value versus growth and a sell-off and what protects you, I don't think that's the right discussion to have at all. I think the right discussion to have is, do you have tail hedges in place? What's your cash allocation? How much do you have bonds? Do you have anything allocated to CTAs? Those are the conversations that I think are more appropriate. So like, if I get a little moody, it's because I think sometimes like, People talk past each other. And sometimes I get angry because I'm like a petulant child. Um, anyway, I don't know. Finally, I had I had a you know a comment about indexing. And I wasn't saying like, you know, somebody said, well, just you know, rather than talking about mega caps, uh, you know, why don't you look at small caps? I own some small caps. I'm not gonna fucking talk about them because if other people get their face ripped off in them, I'm not gonna own that responsibility. People can do their own work. And by the way, I've done a lot better in the bigger stuff than I have the smaller stuff. Uh, I'm open to it. I'm open to special situations. I'm open to all that stuff. But, um, you know, I think, I think like what I am trying to accomplish is, like I said, buying these businesses that I think can grow, uh, that offer reasonable current returns. And I think that worrying about, you know, an inflation print over the next year gets me distracted from the stuff that actually matters over the long term. And if you're owning 30-year assets, I think that the next quarter's CPI print is pretty much meaningless. But I acknowledge that you run the risk of getting run over by quotational indigestion, which is why I think a cash allocation to come over the top is a more appropriate thing to discuss in that, in that scenario. So I don't know, to the extent that people want to understand how my brain thinks, uh, that's more or less how I size, size up things. I think Facebook actually did have a meaningful change. 
I don't think that looking at a stock being off and presuming that the business is the same is the right presumption. I also do think businesses change less quickly than stock prices do. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of nuance for, for everything, um, you know, and that's my two cents. Somebody was offended that I said that my kid had to stop being a bitch. That person can go fuck themselves. <laughs> you know, nothing about how much I care about my family. Uh, so as far as uh, criticizing me, the investor, all is fair in, in love and war. Criticizing me as a human uh, is sort of you're an idiot. And I actually know the truth. So that that's my take on sometimes uh, some of the conversations we have and some of my reactions. I think you're, you did highlight an important point about you. There's quotational risk on anything. And do you want to ensure that quotational risk through CTAs, tail risk hedging, uh, cash, maybe tilting some direction, who knows that may or may not save you that much. Okay. Or do you look past all of that stuff and you just self-insure quotational risk by taking a walk, getting some fresh air, not following every little blip of the market? That's another way to, to self-insure against quotational risk. Um, taking a walk didn't help much when I was down 30% a quarter. Well, you're going to have to walk a little further. <laughs> yeah. It was 26 for what it's worth. but But that's, I mean... If you're going to earn equity returns, you have to be willing to stomach those types of changes uh, quotationally. And if you're right about the business, that it wouldn't, it doesn't matter over the longer term. So, but if you are in a situation where you can't stomach that for whatever reason, whether it's institutional imperative, whether it's you just know yourself that like I can't handle watching my stuff go down that much, uh, whether it's any multitude of reasons, then you should know that. And then therefore do something kind of from an asset allocation standpoint to, to make sure that you're not going to force yourself into making a bad decision when, when it, when the pressure does ratchet up at some point, which it will. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's right. I mean, you know, for me, I'm, I'm managing more or less a static pool. I mean, there's, there's some income coming in, but, um, you know, it's uh, I I think it makes more sense to try to own businesses that I can own for a long time than it does to focus on, you know, is this transitory inflation or not? Like, I don't care. I care whether or not people have to pay their cable bill and whether or not they're addicted to nicotine pouches. And I have some degree of confidence that cable companies should be able to raise their, uh, you know, pricing. If that's not true, I need asset allocation to protect me because like, I just don't, I'm not chasing shittier businesses in the name of trying to be safe. Like, I'm just, I'm not going to do that. I will take a swing at the right thing though. I mean, I swung pretty freaking hard at Curate and that's not exactly, you know, something that people loved and was easy to own. That said, I made like no money and it cost me a shit ton of opportunity cost. (laughs) <laughs> and mental brain yeah. damage. I do love that business and I love the people there. Uh, segue to something else. That, did you guys see that Zero had just been accused of spreading Russian propaganda by US intelligence? Oh yeah, dude, that's old news. They've been, that's been since like 2016. 
I mean, I don't know that they've been formally accused, but I've yeah, been, they've seen been formally accused now. Yeah, I mean, I who U.S. US intelligence? intelligence what does that even mean? I don't know. I, I, I didn't see that, that it was U.S. intelligence. That was just a comment that was left here. But I saw, I saw the article that they had been accused. I don't know how. Like, what does that mean? Do you get a visit from the CIA? <laughs> I, I've heard this for a long, long time, that they're basically like a Russian propaganda outlet. That may not be like common within finance circles, but I have heard that from people for a very long time. I, I mean, that's, but you hear that like anytime that anybody says something that nobody else agrees with, they're always going to be misinformation or propaganda for somebody else, right? There's only two types of information. It's either propaganda or misinformation. There's nothing in between. Yeah. Look, I'm not, I'm not arguing the merit of zero hedge on this program. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm merely saying that I have heard that in the past. What if Zero Hedge was just an elaborate ploy to get you to dump all your equities, be long gold, and just make all the weaken financially the uh, the opposition? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a very. I mean, if you followed their advice, you probably are relatively weaker over the past decade. That's the long game. Yeah, I read Zero Hedge. I think there's a lot of. Um, I, I like I like seeing the the weird stories. I like seeing the stuff that's that's. Um, that's not printed anywhere else. I, I, I kind of like that about it. I'm, I'm on yeah, the lookout right? for like different, different stuff all the time. Like zero hedge had all of the COVID stuff way before anybody else did. I was telling people I came and I read it in Austin, came home and told my wife to go and buy it, a whole lot of food and everybody thought I was nuts. Yeah. I'd zero look, hedge helped me there. I think oh. that they uncover some stuff. I also think that people have said that they're a Russian outlet for a long time. Yeah, I have I thought, no formal opinion to lend to this particular topic. I haven't read them in a long time. Yeah, oh, I read, I read it regularly. I think it's very good, but you know, you got to be, uh, you got to filter everything you read. <laughs> I don't, I don't read the news for, for the most part either, for what it's worth. Well, most stuff, everything you read is bullshit. You just got to, I just want different perspectives on the bullshit. Yeah. I read earnings transcripts and expert interviews. So all those wrongs most cancel of my reading. out to become one right. Is that how it works? <laughs> that's the theory anyway. I don't okay. think it works that way, but no. two, two wrongs make a right. I think that's how it works, right? Uh, throw some questions in, dudes. Hey, Bill, do you have a suggestion on how I can learn about debt structure? Not really. I mean, uh, yeah, I think you just got to pick up the credit documents and start reading and then ask questions if you don't. I mean, it's boring work, but it's important stuff. On, on Curate, I had to ask people that actually work in debt whether or not I was missing something. I mean, there's so many different tranches of debt that like searching for a negative can be very annoying in, in reading debt packages. Uh, so I had to, you know, I had to check my work and, uh, you know, we'll see. Who knows whether or not I was right or wrong in the long term. Do you think I don't have food to... saved up from two years ago. Thanks for that question. Yeah. I don't have food. So I, I, I use this just, I don't use the just in time anymore. I have this inventory and I, I turn the inventory. Actually, Sorry, I somewhat lied. I've recently been writing, reading nothing but net. That's a pretty interesting book. If you want to get the view of a tech analyst. What's that about? Revenue growth. You want revenue growth. Oh, this whole time. <laughs> I mean, that's what a lot of it's about. Uh, JT, what's your background? And are you uh, going to be running the sideline for the University of Texas shortly? 
Uh, yeah, it looks like it. This You're is, a uh, linebacker coach. This is a little hike yesterday or last week that I was on. So I just took a little picture because I like to keep track of my favorite little places to go walk and listen to the Berkshire AGMs on audio. <laughs> yeah, are social media companies disrupting harmony and buying tech with too much censorship? Yeah, I think they are. I think the risk that they run is they get um, into the uh, publishing where they become responsible for Section what they're saying. Section 230 uh, removal. Yeah. I'll tell you what, if that happens, Facebook's going to be the only one left because nobody else has the scale to, to actually... To I mean, Facebook doesn't even have the scale. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Facebook spends more on... I saw some weird stat like Facebook spends more in compliance than Twitter generates in revenue, something weird like that. Yeah. Believe I mean, it. they put a lot of resources into it and they don't, you know, I mean, you privatize the internet, you get the shit that the internet comes with. There's why is monkey using margin to buy Baba? I think that, I don't think that he has used margin specifically to buy Alibaba. I think that they have margin in that account. One of you guys was talking about that a little bit, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I, JT, I do you know have that? no idea. Uh, Charlie yeah. doesn't take my calls. Yeah, he takes he takes JTs. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Not gonna respond to that. It's, I don't confirm or deny. Um, my understanding was that there was already uh, margin used in their account, so it wasn't. Uh, I don't think there was like a like for like kind of, Oh, we took margin to go buy this particular thing, but I don't know. Do your own homework. Do you guys read Seth Klarman's most recent letter? No, I didn't get that one. I would read it. Yeah. yeah it was out there. A lot of doom and gloom. Is that- uh, well, they've had their best year in like a decade or something like that. I don't know that, you know, they're not doing a lot in public equities these days. Most of it's like, they do a lot in real estate i bet they made it rain in real estate i i find all those letters i've just read so many letters now that i just it's very rare that you see something new in a letter i find they're all i could have you know you could feed all of climate's letters into a algo and then it just spits that same same letter yeah yeah true it looks like uh the homie bill is saying that in the 10q uh it says that charlie used margin I have not read the Daily Journal. Thank you. I don't care very much what it has to say, to be perfectly candid. Oh, he borrowed $37 million in the latest queue to buy Barber. That's a crazy I mean, the dude obviously thinks the stock's going up and his other securities are not, are not going to like you know implode. Otherwise, he's got himself in a margin call. Yeah, that is... Um, that's aggressive. Well, Charlie's never not been aggressive. That is true. Pounce vigorously, I believe, was his, his his advice. I mean, I just like I don't know his thesis, so I don't know why he's so comfortable. Like, you know, I mean, look, I don't. Uh, my thoughts on why he's using margin, I don't know. The dude is Charlie Munger. He's a savant. I'm an idiot. Like, I don't. He probably sees something I don't. I was thinking about that the other day when uh, I just happened to come across in the one of the AGMs and Munger was actually talking about Buffett and like how weird he is to everybody. Like, you know, and he's like, he asked like, Hey Warren, didn't you try to buy a town when you were 21 years old? And Warren's like, Oh yeah, I did try that. But it didn't go through. But like we weren't 
none of us were trying to buy a town when we were 21 years old. Like this guy is just different level than, than everybody. And so to think like, Oh, I'm going to just go do, I'm going to be the next, come on, get out of here with that. Well, I mean, just... I don't, the other thing is like, you know, the thing about daily journal, this is the risk with any corporation that somebody has got control of. Like, if you don't like what he's doing, you can sell the stock. But like expecting Charlie not to be Charlie, I don't think is very fair. And Charlie's going to do whatever Charlie wants to do. And like, if you disagree, sell. I probably would have. Di- I probably would have sold when they had all that shit with the Buffalo News. I probably would have been like, "What are these two guys doing? Incinerating cash on fire, fighting a newspaper war? You don't like it? Leave. If yeah. you trust them, trust them." Um. Yeah, the, the beauty of liquidity. The Chinese accounting for Alibaba. There's some, there's some websites out there that track Alibaba's filings that are hilarious and make it hard to invest in Alibaba, even though optically it's cheap. I don't know. Charlie's got some additional help there from Lilu, though, I'm sure. So it's probably probably a good trade. Yeah, right. I mean, that's that's really what I think it boils down to is you've got Lilu and Charlie on one side, and then you've got me in an office opining on it. I'll take Lilu and Charlie. <laughs> Can always ask the question at the Daily Journal meeting that's coming up soon. Tomorrow. Are yeah, you, how are you, you coming dial up in? What's up? Is it is it live or is it uh, dialing? Uh, it's I, I think, think it's, it's on Yahoo broadcast, but I don't know how you would try to ask a question. I'm um, sorry if I was curt with the Daily Journal thing, but I just don't I just don't know, and I just really do think like. Any controlled company, you're at risk of the person that's in the in the driver's seat going a direction that you don't want to go. What's up with the turnover in Burry's portfolio? So many moves. Yeah, I don't know. I don't hate it though. That's how I do it. Try, try He's always had a lot of. Well, I shouldn't say that, but I do think he turns things over a fair amount, doesn't he? You know that that deeper value yeah. stuff. When it gets to value, you got to punch it out. You can't sit on it, round trip it. Lilu got destroyed on PDD and Facebook. Facebook's interesting, right? How how much do you guys hate Facebook, the stock? I I mean, I'm long it, so I don't hate it. But I also think that people that don't understand what's going on there are like completely fucking blind to the change that's going on there. Were you long before or after the dump? Before. Yeah, it's kind of interesting now, right? I don't know. I thought it was interesting before, but I, I do think that fundamentally before might be deep value now i don't think value and tech is a great combo uh just Ah, generally okay okay. well i mean if you have statistical proof i'm merely diarying my head but uh i think you you just about can't exclude it from a technical perspective i mean from a not 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 sorry not technical statistical perspective yeah i I mean look i i i think i think the you got to have a view on what short form video does to the inherent nature of the platform. Eh, you know, maybe, what do you mean? Eh? <laughs> it's a social platform. And we Zuckerberg do it in different ways, mate. I don't, I don't have views on all of that stuff. I'm never going to figure that stuff out. It's too hard. If it gets too cheap, I'm just going to buy it. How do you? Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's fine. We have different have ways of operating. Of it. Let it ride. It's a, it's the difference between basket buying and, in idiosyncratic buying that's right that's okay i think a lot of this stuff is unknowable and i just think that 
you know, it's a little bit like macro, like it's fun to talk about, but shouldn't really impact investment decisions. I don't think that talking, like doing calls with advertisers and have them tell you that stories monetize different than newsfeed and that the reason is because the way that people click through it. And if you look at human behavior, scrolling the news, like, I don't think that's unknowable. I think that's just doing the work. That might be why it's cheap. You know? Okay. I mean, sure. (laughs) But, but you don't have a view on it. Like the whole point is you have a statistical idea. So you opining on it and just like throwing it away is I know. So, so it almost, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but the way you're treating this, it's almost as if it doesn't, it's not even worth talking about. Well, let's talk about it. I was trying, but you know, if it gets too cheap, you'll buy it. That's the discussion. I, th- I think that's kind of like, we've, we've really, we've already established that's my approach. Yeah. I have no idea how you determine what is cheap and what is not without these questions being answered in a discretionary portfolio. If you want to outsource it to a bunch of bets, I totally understand that, but then it's not worth having a business discussion over. It's a statistical conversation. Well, you're trying to handicap the future based on dynamics that are happening today. Toby's looking backwards at what's already happened and assuming some reversion to the mean somewhere. And both of you can be right. And it's both can be smart ways of doing it. And it doesn't necessarily have to. I think the, the, what it is for me, I can tell you, I'm, I'm not trying to be too flippant here because there's a lot of work that goes into the background, but the idea is that it, it has been historically a good business and that's, that's all observable quantitatively, right? It could, and it's now priced too cheaply if it sustains what it has done in the past. It's now priced too cheaply, even if there's a pretty big diminution in its historical performance. Like if it's now going to completely revert to the mean, then it's too expensive. But if it's going to take, it, it's got a long way to go before it becomes too expensive at these prices. So that's the way that I think about it. I think if it does anywhere near what it has done in the past, you know, with a very wide range, it's too cheap here and it'll probably do okay, uh, you know, with a long enough time frame, five-year, 10-year time frame. That's, that's, that's what I think That's what I think about it. As to diving down into the detail of, of the, the business part of it, I, I, I question whether anybody can really figure that out because it all moves so quickly. And maybe that's why you don't want to be in tech, but that's, that's, that's my position without being too flippant. All right, fellas, that's time. This is fun. <laughs> Dead air. <laughs> I question how you can invest without questioning that stuff. So, uh, But statistically cheap bets is the way you can do it.